Welcome to our last session of the day. My name is Michael Coleman with the Soundworks Collection, and I'm so happy to have our wonderful guest, Cheryl Onritter, here. So when we programmed this stage today for the event, we wanted to do TV and film, which we've done. And then kind of the last element was documentary. And so I'm so incredibly excited to have Cheryl here because um, I'm a documentary filmmaker and I just happen to love all the projects that she worked on. And when I knew that Cheryl was going to be at the event today, I, I was so excited because I think she is a wonderful example of what's possible for documentary filmmaking and thinking about Atmos, thinking about spatial audio, thinking about storytelling through sound. And we're going to dive into one of the films that sh she worked on. We have a lot of wonderful clips. But for you, Cheryl, give a little background on your career path to becoming a film mixer. Um, well, actually, I started out in a machine room long, long time ago <laughs> and uh, just worked my way up and uh, started editing, mixing, sound designing. I'm from the East Coast, from the D.C. area, where we have to do it all. Like in L.A., you're a dialogue editor or a sound supervisor or a music supervisor or a re-recording mixer. And in D.C., you have to do it all. You have to do everything from production sound, which I don't do because... I just don't do that. Um, or, uh, you know, edit, sound design, dialogue, all the way through re-recording -re mix, which is fabulous because you get to wear all sorts of hats and you get to bring the project up exactly how you want to. It's not fabulous because then it's like everybody, the, all the panels have a team, you know, they have a whole team. And then, you know, when the team is you, that that's a kind of a problem. So you need to really you know, reach out. And I, so I work with a, a lot of different sound editors, um, sound designers. I have four engineers on staff for a very tight team. Uh, and so I found that like, if I'm doing dialogue editing and mixing, I'm not necessarily doing a lot of sound design. I, I sound supervised, or if I really want to sound design that project, then I'm just sound supervising and approving the final pass. So that's kind of how I work. And what can you say about being where you are in, in your hometown of where you live? How does that influence? Does that influence the type of work or access to projects differently? Does that influence it? It, it has. It has always has. Um, recently, though, it, we're becoming more and more location agnostic. And that's how I'm trying to approach the next stage of my career, the next stage of my business, is that I'm location agnostic. I can do the work wherever. We can stream box it so you can approve it anywhere. Of course, you know, security measures, et cetera, depending on the project. But uh, I'm finding that more and more you can be anywhere and be creative and be a creative content maker anywhere. Um, it has shaped my career in that I do a ton of museum work, um, not just the things you push the button and go, oh, that's interesting. A lot of interactives for museums. Uh, but one thing that has come along and actually spurred my reason reasoning to get Atmos is uh, I do a ton of uh, niche bespoke theater installations so like long beach aquarium uh you know atlanta the cyclorama uh, different places where you actually have to go build your gear you know tune it do your thing mix it in the space and make your content sound good in that space and so that's that's how atmos came to be for me because i was doing more and more projects with with overheads and 40 experiences and it was before there was a overhead panning and Pro Tools. So, that, so let's go back to 2015. Uh, you had your previous studio, mm -hmm. and I think it was one of the first East Coast Atmos RMUs uh, yes. at the time. What was that like for you to make that transition to be like, I'm going to now do this thing that people are telling me I need to do, and I feel like it's a good application for my clients. What can you say about those first early steps into Atmos at that time? I wanted to do Atmos since my first experience with it in 2013. I, I had no 
no hesitation, zero hesitation. I knew it was where the industry was going. I didn't want to hesitate. I wanted to be on the forefront of learning the techniques and learning what the technology was and how to tell a story through it. So for me, it wasn't even, it was a no brainer. Um, and, but for my clients, it, it's been an awesome experience watching them experience sound in a different way. Documentary do, doesn't always get these big rooms, doesn't always get, you know, and so it, it's just delightful for me when I have a director who who is like, wow, that's what you can do in sound. And in documentary, you're telling a, you're telling a story It's in still, and what's really neat for me is to see the directors start to relive their experiences from the field in the mix. And that's happened with actually two or three projects that I've done. So it's really, really fun, and it's neat. So for a lot of people, for documentary filmmakers, people lower budget, and so asking Cheryl before, which is like, well, in documentary, there's an assumption that there's little to no budgets for considerations of sound. Sometimes it's kind of an afterthought, or sometimes the director might not really have the foresight to think about that. There's a lot of more wonderful storytelling that can happen in documentary. Give me like an idea of the array of when you are working on the different array of projects, how budget it does influence or doesn't influence what you're doing, and how fundamentally that maybe it doesn't necessarily change your process. Like budget is like you're always going to want to do your best work, right? And yeah. What I found is that the project is the project, you know, no matter what, you know, you're yourself as a, a documentary filmmaker, you know, your budget is your budget. So, but it's not the project's fault. You have no money, <laughs> you know? So it, I really work hard at giving a very economic approach to, to sound as much as possible. But what I found is actually mixing in Atmos allows me to mix quicker, faster. I get better results and it's, it's and then I just keep it in the background and I may only deliver the five one for the DCP or the stereo for the streaming or whatever it is that they think they want that's going to change three months after they leave my suite. So now with your, your current studio, your second place, can you have a sense of the size and uh, the scale of what you have and your setup and how that allows you to do large or small projects doesn't really matter anymore? Well, it does. Like I don't obviously, I don't have. Yeah, this suite. sure, obviously, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I do have a very, a very large home theater mix suite, and what I've found is that it translates extremely well to this type of room. Um, and so I feel like for people who can't afford to have six weeks or a month on a stage, you know, get get it right in your home setup. Get it right in your home theater. You know, more and more people are building suites in their basement you know, um, as well as a commercial space, which I have. And I feel like, you know, be creative. Don't, don't let it hold you back. You know, don't, don't, don't let that mindset hold you back. You know, it, yes, you have to have a proper space so that you can spatially organize your thoughts and do the sound image and, and stuff and stuff like that. I think Caleb on the morning panel was very vocal about that. And he's absolutely right in that. But once you get seasoned in it, there's a lot that you can mentally focalize and then translate into a home theater suite and then and then the stage. I think that's something that we've been hearing uh, different iterations throughout the day, which is the translation. If someone starts with a native Atmos mix downstream, there's uh, less of a consideration about, I have to go back and do a, a, a fix or there's like a different understanding. Mm -hmm. It seems that the technology is set up so that your workflow is you do your best mix or your best iteration and then you you have all those other things. So it's not really cost. It doesn't. Seem like it's not, it shouldn't be a cost. Uh. The only thing that really, I mean, in documentary, you know, depending on where it's going for distribution, um, you do have to worry about all the deliverables, and you know, so like for theater, they have. Who who hears mix, mixing Atmos already? 
Okay. So you're, you know, you have your bed and then you have your objects, right? So, well, if you're delivering anything for pretty much anywhere, you have to deliver, you have to deliver so many different stems, right? And you have to have those in your back pocket at all times because it's going to get sold to Brazil. It's going to get sold to, to everywhere, you know, UK, it's going to be everywhere. So you, you can't just think, oh, the, the client just told me they needed this. You have to pre-think for them. So, you know, set up your, all your beds so that it matches groups. So that at the end of the day, you can, you know, re-render everything out and re listen to all those re-renders so that you know what it's going to sound like um, especially in documentary you don't have the the time or the resources to do all these separate mixes and what console are you on and what speakers are you playing back in what's the configuration i love my s6 it's absolutely wonderful um i don't know how i lived without it uh and i really 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 love it i'm so much faster on it like the previous group you know he was saying he organizes everything you know and all all the groups and and that's how exactly how we work in the nonfiction world so i you know i throw up the VCAs and attach them to the groups and then it's all right there and then boom, I'm done. And especially with the the waveforms on the S6 now, I've gotten away almost entirely from looking at the edit screen. So, cause looking ahead. So, and then my speakers are still blue skies, which I, I'm- They still work just fine, I'm sure, right? Yeah, they're great. They're really are. Are you more of them or are they all matched or? What's yeah. your setup? Okay. It's the the big, I forget the model numbers. Okay. I'm not good with that. So uh, the really tall blue skies with the small ones on the sides. Mm -hmm. And the new set setup, I almost cried when mm. I heard it. I was I was just like, in, just like so happy. Because whenever you build a new room, you never know. You never know how it's going to turn out until you hear it. And it just is like, spatially, I'd been listening to things in Atmos for years now. And I, so I start playing it down. And I was like, I'd never heard that before. You know, so spatially, if you're thinking about building a room, height does, you have to be very cautious with your height and your width and your, and your speaker placement. And uh, I know that in the panel this morning, they're, they're like, yeah, just do it, you know, just do it. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's better than not doing it, but it, it does matter. It does matter. I love it. So no one has an excuse, like your, your wife or your, your husband be like, no, sorry, the garage is off limits. You're like, ah. Yeah. I think it's fine. Yeah. I've, seen, I've seen plenty of converted garages that have wonderful yeah, no, Atmos no. rooms. Yeah. You know, we, we do have a commercial space in Silver Spring, a new one uh, delightfully above the next the best sushi place in town <laughs> and um, and right around the corner from the AFI. So it, it's a really neat location and we really love it. But it took us six months to find a location that we could build this size of room mm -hmm. that we wanted with the budget that we could, could afford. So mm -hmm. it was very interesting. And then in my basement, I'm going to be building two or three suites. You're so, growing pretty quickly. It's exciting. You know, it's, I'm just lucky. I'm so lucky. <laughs> uh, I think you're also very talented. I want to queue up Hidden Pacific. So for folks, how did this project come into your lap and what was unique and different? Because it seems that the subject matter is, it lends itself to Atmos. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, I actually think all documentary, unless it's so many talking heads, that it all leads to Atmos. Mm -hmm. But this one specifically, it fell in my lap. Um, it's the call everybody wants, you know. I got I was sitting in the studio one night and I got a call and I'm this guy I didn't know just said, "Hey, I heard your work on, you know, uh, the Lizard movie and that that one at at Smash." And I was like, I was like, "Yeah, that was a great film." He goes, "I want you to do my next project." So mm. I was like, "Sure, I'd love to." So uh, we talked about it. He he had already kind of started it a little bit, and I don't usually as a role takeover projects, but I was like, "Okay, I'll." I'll 
do do this one. And it started out just purely as a uh, 5.1 and a 5.0 IMAX. And then halfway through, it, it switched to a theatrical Atmos, near-field Atmos, and and uh, everything else. So I had to rebuild everything for for the show. But that's how it came about. And the, the director is immensely talented. The cinematography is beautiful. He has great ideas. He's just delightful to work with. And this is the opening of? of yes, right? this is the open. And one thing to listen for, I wish we could have big RMU panels up here so you could watch what's going on with the objects. Um, but one thing to really listen for is how it gets starts really quiet and narrow. The sound image is narrow, and then it pops open when the uh, the first frame is seen. And then also, if you could see the the objects, the the, the flying what what did Tom call it? Uh, the the flying I call them the flying balls, but anyway, uh, you would really see the texture of what's happening with the objects in the water, and it you know everywhere and all over the place, up and down. And I I find that um that texture really comes across when you start to doing the re-renders. So well, let's take a listen. Let's take a listen. So one thing I forgot to mention too is is one thing I love to do that object-based mixing is is great is is to, to play with size of objects. We always talk about panning and placing, but the size of, of doing something with uh, a sound, especially like when the earth is coming at you, is really, really powerful. And you can really do a lot with the object size as well as placement. So I really recommend, you know, you guys playing with that too, because it's 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 just so much fun. So um, what about the full range surrounds and, and what, what are you doing in the LFE? Like how, how do you represent like a scene like that? Yeah, the, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I've, I grow a lot in, during each project, you know. So I've started, you know, with LFE having more and more, more and more dedicated LFEs as well as going to the full range. And then with the LFE, I have dedicated LFE tracks so that I can manipulate through EQ so that they're more powerful. And then if I want a broader range uh, of EQ of frequencies, then, uh, you know, make them uh, stand out more by EQing so that you have all these different ranges, but yet it's still going to the LFE. And how do you find, like, even for subtle scenes like this, obviously, the, how the point source information of mm -hmm. object base, how does that um, help you in ways that obviously wasn't accessible before? Well, first of all, one of the brilliant things about uh, Dolby Atmos is that you're more reassured that what they're hearing, wherever they're hearing it, is going to be accurate to your pinpoint. So I find that the the accuracy of the object-based mixing is is paramount, and especially this type of thing where you're type of documentary where you you want that bird to be right there. And literally that director was like, yeah, no, that bird's got to be right there. And to the point where we... I was I was a little like wow okay no it's got to be here more so it I feel like the accuracy of what you can do matching picture especially with cinematography like this you really just want to get it exact and intimacy is really important and intimacy in mixing and in documentary especially is is some somehow overlooked but intimacy is really where Dolby Atmos shines I mean I love the the uh, the car. I, I was blown away by that. Oh, absolutely. Blown, totally blown away, totally blown away. And and that is one extreme of how Atmos is just so powerful, right? And they're just exploiting it, right? They're doing a great job. The other, the other extreme is that the quiet moments, you can just make that feel all around you very, very intimately. 
remember the first time, um, you guys remember the film Chasing Mavericks, surf film? You guys remember that one? It was an early Atmos. It, I don't think it was, it wasn't native at the time, but I remember it was the first time uh, I had experienced Atmos. It was underwater, like this very similar kind of setting, but I just remember uh, when you have a picture that underwater, and when you have that energy over the top of your head, to me, it, it just totally was enveloping and immersive in a way that I had never experienced before. Do you find, like in documentaries, how much are you pulling into your overheads and surrounds? Like, how far is too much for you for documentary projects? I've been accused of being extreme. So <laughs> um, I tend to do way more than some of my counterparts uh, and then pull back. Like, it, it's it's how I usually approach a project is, is go too far and then pull back um and i do more than just ambiences or more than just music i do you know fun things like leafs and and different i try different things and not just the typical what you think should be in the in the ceiling is it the director is it production who's the one besides yourself that's maybe like ah oh, maybe this is too far like where's how do you draw the line well my chief engineer usually comes in and goes cheryl really and I and then I start thinking well maybe you know and no it's usually the director of course the director has the final say I mean we work together we're collaborative but the director it's their movie you know and as a mixer you always their vision is what you're trying you know that's your goal is is to work towards a vision and have it be their vision whether it changes along the way because you've had discussions or you've done something to change their mind so it's it's really the directors. I mean, that's the exciting thing about this technology is that like there's no right or wrong because everyone's still learning. I mean, we're only a handful of years into actually getting this right. this tool set in. So it's like we can't really be like, oh, no, you can't do that because it's like, well, you can. It's just it's preference. You know, I, I think that's part of the exciting point of where we're at now. Yeah. I mean, you have to watch, be tasteful, you know, sure. don't be cheesy, you know, oh, just because you can doesn't make it right, that type of thing. So, and I do think that we've learned some painful lessons from when 5.1 really first uh, came on the scene and, and everybody was doing like really crazy stuff. And, and so I think, you know, we remember that in our memory and we're like, yeah, let's not go down that road. And I haven't really seen a lot of people do that. You know, it's it's because it's the experience. It's not just, oh, let's put it in the rear. Sure, that's know, not, yeah. yeah. Um, so for this next clip, this the what do you say, the leaf feel. So once you set it up, and what's happening? Well, in this uh, in this scene, the scientist on the island is is walking through a forest to get to the beach, and what I didn't know until I actually I was on stage was that it was coming out in 3D and there was these 3D moments. So um, so finally the director said, oh yeah, these are the 3D moments and he gave them to me. I was like, oh, that's good information to have. So I said, oh, well, well then with this leaf, the leaf is gonna come out to the audience and come back in. I really wanted to have that, you have you feel that. And um, for me, it was the, not the first time, but it was the, the moment of like, this is what I want. This is how to do it. It's done. And it was like, wow, let's, you know, it was good. Um, and what can you say in terms of how you treated perspective? Uh, how far is enough? W where is your center audience? Like, how, is it, how do you take into all those considerations of size and scale in terms of, of, of a for a 3D film? Oh, um, just intuition. Okay. You know, like what, what, how does it feel to me? Uh, you know, how, how does it feel like it's coming through me? Does it feel like it's coming at me? Is yeah. it going to match that? And of course we didn't see it in 3d. We didn't mix it to 3d. I only got the notes back that, yeah, it all worked. So, Jeez. you know, let's take a look and see, see how it worked. Thank you. 
That scene was hard, actually. I was, I was uh, just watching it to me. I was wondering how much, was there any production? Did you, or was it, no, it was totally scraped, clean. Yeah. So why why was it hard besides that? Um, well, just the perspective of it all. For for instance, going down into the water, trying to get all those sounds to actually sound because water is hard. Has anybody found found that out? Water is really hard. So like you know, how can you distinguish between the above the water going into the water and into the water and in the water deeper? You know, and then the fish going through the water. Like yeah, water's hard. So um, and then coming back up, I really wanted you to feel like she was coming out of the water, and then you heard. The, heard the birds overhead and the I mean every time I put in a bird he was like I want more birds I want more of that and so the the, the birds is like five tracks of birds <laughs> everywhere I mean all over you know objects flying and everything and, and it was just perfect for the scene so I mean that's that's exactly and so that that's why it was so hard yeah what about music there's obviously the voiceover right probably down the middle but then how'd you treat music music was a 5-1 five 5-1 one, because five one, I insisted on it um they they were gonna give me stereo and I was like, Are you kidding? You know, no, 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 no. Um, you know, please give me five one. And so fortunately I also had the stems so I could so I could build that out. And I separated out the LFE and then um I anchored I anchored some well, I didn't really anchor it. I moved it around a little bit, some verb. Um and I usually just put the verb like kind of in the sides to fill it up, but on certain on certain um, uh, music cuts and depending on what was going on, I I put it more like a blanket over you because like especially to give you that blanket feel when you're in, in the water. So the nice thing is that the ambiences of air, subtle things that help make it feel like it's sitting in a real world. Um, right. I really love how you're adding air and then you have right. like there's a little ding over there and a little bird over there. Yeah, I mean, it, that's that's kind of where I was going with the intimacy before is that you don't have to, just because you have 128, you know, <laughs> you don't have to use them all. Mm. And it's, it's how you use it. And I feel that, like, it, it's just very, um, a powerful, powerful object-based mixing is so powerful for that. Like, mm -hmm. you put that bell right where that bike is, mm -hmm. you can feel the scopes, you know, going by. And it's, it's... It just makes it more real, more alive. How much time do you have for a project like this, even for a scene like that? How was your process for going through it? What's your team look like? For this one, it was just me and one other person. And I, I did take over the project um, due to scheduling, and there was a very minimal sound design done. So for this one, I had to, but I had to adapt the sound design because they changed the cut like five times. So b between the time he did the sound initial initial sound design pass and I got the cut, so basically it almost rendered his sound design useless. But the time time wise for this project, it was three weeks, um, and then it switched to an Atmos. Um, an Atmos mix, and so then I had to adapt a 5.1 into an Atmos, which I hate doing. So now I never do that anymore. I'm always mixing Atmos in the background now. So if, if that happens again, I, I won't be caught short. Um, and and then mix was a couple days, and then a couple days on the stage. Are you cutting while you, are you mixing and cutting at the same time? Or? All the time. Okay. All the time. I usually, usually do stages, though. So we do dialogue editing. I do dialogue editing. I'm very picky about my dialogue um <laughs> nobody wants to dialogue edit for me so i have to do my dialogue so you editing. do it. i do it and uh that you know so sound so cutting sound effects dialogue editing and then i put that together and then i do another pass of sound design myself and then mix it 
and then mix it. You sleep sometime in between there, right? You know, sometimes. <laughs> people, people yell at me, you don't sleep, you don't sleep. Well, I think there's something interesting when you have small crews and you really own the project, the relationship, like you are the relationship with your client uh, and your director and you carry that story. You can have that intimacy. Yeah, and it, it, it's very interesting because he was looking for, you know, he's based here and he was looking for um, a new relationship and... Um, and it's it's working out. We start another project in November, so that's exciting. So that's awesome. Yeah. So this next clip is a volcano. Yeah, the <laughs> volcano. Of course, I wanted the volcano to be bigger, and I got shot down. Uh, bigger I, in what way? Loudness, intensity, sound everything, design, everything. Okay. Everything. I wanted it to be in your face. You're in a volcan volcano, and you're 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 dying because you're in the lava pit, right? And I kept on getting shot down because the nature of documentary, as we all know, is that it's it's a uh, voice based, right? Damn the Right? You have you have to have dialogue. So here's this awesome volcano scene, and it's I they made me bring it down, but it it still is very very huge and awesome in Atmos. So let's take check it out. Thank you. So that I I wanted everything bigger, you know the the air at the end, everything bigger, and I got shot down. But you know that again that goes through the collaboration of you and your director, and and he had this vision of that scene and. We didn't share the same vision, but that's that's okay. But it's still a very powerful scene. I, I felt like it would be more powerful if if he had allowed no dialogue in that scene, and he could have cut around it, but he, you know he didn't. So, but it's an interesting uh, thing to bring up because sometimes when you bring sound in early, sometimes there's wonderful things that could happen when you allow. I think when you have a locked picture, and obviously under you don't want to go back and change picture while you're on the mix stage, so you're kind of right. committed, but. Yeah, um, and approval, and you're talking. This was, you know, being colored in London, and you know, for for IMAX, and it's like all all steam. It was yeah. just like there was no going back at that point, and mm. it was like, oh man. And and do you ever take your mixes out of like? How do you reference outside or even in different different ways? Is there only one mix that you do, and that's one you always reference in terms of? No, no, I'm always I'm always jumping back and forth mm -hmm. in the suite between the Atmos the seven one and five one and the two zero, and uh, putting on small speakers, even even TVs. Okay. Uh, you know, sound bars are fantastic. I don't have one set up yet. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how to do a consumer setup from the RMU directly, so mm -hmm. it's a push of a button to go to go to a, a soundbar, mm -hmm. so I can put that in the suite too, and I do that. And I also sometimes, you know, try, download parts of it to my phone and listen to it off my phone, because I know that, especially documentary, a lot of people are consuming it, the content that way. Mm -hmm. So that's how I handle that. We don't have time to do separate mixes, so I have to make sure it's, in this case we did, because we had to do Atmos, IMAX Atmos and 5.1. So this, in this case, we did, and it was enlightenment, enlightenment to me because um, I never have time to be on the uh, to to mix that much, you know. And it was like, oh wow, I get to I get to approve a five a different 5.1. Okay, let's go. So um, it was it was a really interesting process for me comparatively to my usual process where, you know, I do all the re-renders and I make sure that the the beds and the objects are compressed properly. Uh, so that when it goes into the RMU and it comes back out, that it sounds a little bit more like a, 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 it sounds it sounds more like what we're used to. It's a, it's a different workflow a little bit. And I'm glad you mentioned that. So, how can you describe um, your relationship then with Dolby of 
when you have a question or you're trying to figure something out or you want to interface and give some feedback, how has that been for you? What's been your experience of directly being the first person on the East Coast? You've been around for what, quite a while. Yeah. Um, I really, the support that they give me all the time is fantastic. Like, I really don't ever feel alone. Like, I mean, even David Gold called me one night in New York and I was like, it's not working. Why isn't it working? And and he was like, oh, because we updated the interface. And I was like, ah, you know, so, I mean, but no, I never, I never feel alone. But what I do, I do feel like because I'm not in a big market like LA or, you know, New York has a few uh, RMUs now, but or when we were doing it ourselves, it was more like, okay, let's figure this out, you know, and it takes time to sit down and go, okay, this is how this is working. And I'm not saying that we're doing it right, but all the time, trial and error, you know, sometimes like, oh, well, that sucked. Let's try it this way. Or this wasn't working very well. This isn't elegant. And one thing it is, is that my team is always very thinking They're And we collaborate and we say, oh, well, this didn't work very well. Let's, what are we going to do better next time? And I feel that's how you grow as an artist or no matter what you do, is you're always looking for how to do it better i think you got through a hurdle of saying i'm not going to go back to what i was doing before like this is the future and this is what i this is gonna help me creatively i i hate mixing out of out without atmos i hate it like i i really don't like it at all it's not enjoyable to me at all anymore well i shouldn't say that because i know how much better a project could be sure the potential is is there right so that's another reason why i'm starting to evergreen all our Mm all our film projects. And that's the exciting thing too, is if, as we've seen the trends of more people, more platforms um, are allowing, you know, Atmos to be widely available. There's, you know, there's like a roadmap, I think of saying like the work that we're doing is going to be hopefully enjoyed by the right, you know, by our audiences. And that's exciting. I think, I think the avenues for um, population or getting, getting it out there to the consumers is bigger than just, you know, streaming or broadcast, it's, it's museums, it's, it's, uh, live events, it's, it's, it's everywhere. And I, I feel that, um, you know, we just have to keep on growing with it. And somebody said today that we're ahead of picture. I, I don't know if that's entirely true, but, um, but we are definitely on a very exciting road right now journey. It's awesome. It's just so much fun. So before we open up to some questions, I have the last clip, which is for a Manta Ray, you yes. know, a Manta Ray clip. Um, this, we, we worked on this quite a bit because once the director figured out that he could tell me that's where the flip is on a Manta Ray, uh, you know, it was, it was like, no, a little bit more to the right, a little bit more to the left, you know? And, and so it, it, uh, in Manta Rays, how do you make a Manta Ray sound in underwater, right? How does that real, I don't know what a Manta Ray sounds like underwater, right? And, and, and you know, there's no recordings. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So it's like, okay, what do I do? And so I had created this whole sound of, you know, with different dynamic, I mean, frequency ranges to try to cut through the water. That was the hard, that was really hard. I mean, somewhat hyper real. I mean, you're trying to accentuate something like visually you're seeing, but you want to accentuate it. Right, exactly. Sonically. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah. Let's take a look. Okay. And that was also another. That was also another really good example of transition from below water to above water. Yeah, it jumps up. You wonder if you're gonna get that kind of like like some trying to hear it, but kind of yeah. like subtly transitioned. Yeah, it wasn't so hard. That was more kind of a mix uh, a mix process than a sound design process on that. But yeah. yeah. What have you not done in Atmos that you're still excited about? Oh, I'm sure there's lots of things I haven't yeah. done. I'm just scratching the surface. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, I I. I 
you know, I, every time I do a project, I try to do, I try to learn or do something different each time, at least, at least one thing, at least one, if not more. And, and in a different scene and a, a, a larger project, you know, like this, maybe, you know, 10 new things or, you know, and I try to diff- think of different ways of approaching a project. I don't just think I got to get it done. I got to get it done because that's no fun for me. Um, yeah, I have to get it done and I do have to go home and make dinner for my kids. But, um, you know, it's, you know, that's what's really, really fun about going on this journey and learning how to experience at most as a mixer, a sound designer, an editor, and a consumer. So, you know, sit back and actually watch the film, watch what you're doing and see how you're feeling about it, see how it 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 carries you. And I feel like, especially with documentary filmmaking, um, and the finishing end, we don't allow ourselves enough time to really understand, like to, to, uh, to take it all in, you know, and live with it for a while so that we can actually make really good decisions. So, and that happened on this piece only because they changed it so much, you know, it was, it was constant. <laughs> Any questions that we'd like to ask? Uh, when you're dealing with a documentary with a lot of talking head scenes, are you fully filling out ambience kind of all over the place if it's an Amos film? Only if they have the budget and <laughs> only if it's going to Netflix. Got it. So, yeah, I mean, uh, not that I'm lazy, but, you know, they don't they don't have them. That's that's a lot. And especially for a feature doc, you know, so if, if, if it's required, of course. But no. And so you do. I do. I won't say shortcuts, but I do do tricks so that I can fill out the ambiences, but they're, I wouldn't call them fully filled. Well, I mean, more than that, like, you know, that's the easy, that's the easy go to, right? Air on top. But uh, no, it, it, it just depends on the scene and the project. I do a lot more with wrapping around and up than I do on the ceiling now. And I don't know why. It's just, or I, I should say technically overheads, but you know, so, but that's the answer is that they don't have the budget for it. So usually the documentary, the director will go, I'll give them the price for that. And cause that's what they're asking about. And I give it to them and they go, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't do that. And so then we go, well, I go, well, what about this? And they're like, what's wrong with this? Or, you know, what's the difference? And I tell them, and ha- you know, most of these cats, they don't, they're not, they haven't sold it yet. You know, they, they don't know where it's going. So then, then it's like, well, I'm going to do this. And I'm like, okay, well, just remember, if you go down this path, you need to come back and do, do this. And, you know, that's unfortunate, but that's what you have to do, right? Yeah, that's a great question. Someone, yeah, right here. No, thanks. Uh, I was just wondering with the, the opportunities that Atmos Mixing gives you and the amount of possibilities that you have, do you ever run the risk of losing the audience from the documentary, like the realism and the documentary? Do you feel like you're fighting with not letting people get too lost with stuff that's going on and distractions? Absolutely not if it's mixed right. You know, that's that's the thing and that's the point is like if you're if you're distracting from the story, whether it's stereo, five one, seven one or Atmos, then you're not in my opinion, humble opinion, you're not doing your job because you, the, if if the sound is distracting in any way, then it's not right, and you have to you have to rethink that scene or rethink what you're doing there creatively. Um, you know, of course, in promos and different advertising, then yeah, you want distraction. You're trying to get 
that person's attention. It's a totally different, totally different content. But in documentary, if you're not supporting the story with your sound or driving it in some way that is driving the story, um, it, it should never distract. That's, I don't know. I actually sit and watch to see if something's distracting and then I change, make changes. It's interesting when Cheryl talks about the fact that she cuts her own dialogue. It just speaks to obviously the documentary genre of like the voice, the story that that usually documentary filmmakers use, you know, is a big, um, a big, you know, through line for everyone. So um, I'm happy to hear that. Hopefully you don't like, cut everything in the future, but I get it. I, it makes sense because it's so important. I mean, the voice is the backbone of nonfiction and documentary. It really, really is. Unless, even if, I mean, you're doing verite, you know, it, it, it is. And, you know, sound can, you should decide on your sound palette before you start and how you're going to work it with the scenes and the, uh, with the director. Or, unfortunately, uh, sometimes the director's really burned out by the time they get to audio. Or, you know, hopefully they've brought me in earlier like this was later uh the river and the wall which will screen tonight was i was brought in way before they even went out in the field and even then they didn't listen or didn't take my advice and get a sound person so it was really um it you know they do what they have to do but it's you know i don't know did i get off track sorry it's all right i like i like it that was a great answer um next question all right all right here yeah um, so I work at a prominent university, which has a social documentary program. Um, I'm right here. <laughs> yeah, and um, you know, I've been. It's really a high bar to get. You know, Dolby Atmos. We are not going to get Dolby Atmos in mixing, and these are people that are starting out. So what I've heard today a lot is about this sound bar, which I would have never considered before. But I heard Mr. Kramer from Netflix say, oh, the sound bars sound great. And so I'm thinking, okay, maybe this is a possibility, you know, to get the documentarians, you know, into sound to see how they can use that. So I'm interested to hear, you know, that you said that the sound bar, you know, this is a solution that we might be able to use. And, you know, to add that also, there is not a Dolby Atmos theater within 25 miles of our school. So it's really hard to promote this, and I would love yeah. to hear your answers to that. What, what school are you at? Yeah. UC Santa Cruz. Okay. Oh, okay. In the Bay Area, sure. Well, first of all, I think that... Is it San Jose? Is I, there one? I could Else? Be. Is there one in the South Bay? Yeah. There's yeah. one in the South Bay. Yeah. Okay, maybe you're right. Maybe, okay. <laughs> I could be. I'm in the Bay Area, too. I could... I, I, I want to make sure I understand that you're asking if you can use a sound bar as a mixing tool or or a listening tool no i at this time you can't use it as a as a uh, mixing tool what i was i was been dreaming about for like three years is setting up a consumer setup meaning a consumer living room type setup uh with a soundbar so that actually my mix from the rmu in the traditional mix situation feeds the consumer setup so that with a flick of the button i can go okay this is what jack is listening to in his living room on his soundbar um the soundbar cannot replace a mixing setup unfortunately it's an interesting challenge that you bring up because yeah. uh, i remember like even when i was in school early 2000s it was a challenge of like what's the future and it was 7-1 at the time uh obviously we're past 7-1 and now obviously spatial audio is where the future is so I don't know what the right answer is because it's hard to like. Uh, I think you still start with the fundamentals because the students. I think you can start students in spatial audio. There's nothing wrong with that. They should understand that. But I think the fundamentals 
are still important. I think they're still valid. And I mean, yeah. just, yeah. I think you do what you can do as much as you can do that with your for your students and expose them to the concepts and the technology as much as possible so that they're aware of it so that when they're put in those situations, other situations and other places, they can learn from it. Um, you know, good sound is good sound, whether it's stereo or 5.1 or Atmos. So I don't know. But one thing that I, I, I want to really bring up is how many people here are their own, are documentary filmmakers besides Michael? Okay. Well, we did we did talk about ambisonics a little bit on the panel this morning, and one thing that I really am starting to stress is is uh, production crews when they go out is to take an ambisonic microphone, and uh, the uh, other sound designer on the panel, Judith Judy, um, uh, said she couldn't manage all those tracks; they'd be thrown off the stage. I, I get to do what I want. I, you know, I can I can take whatever I want, what whatever tracks I want, and play with it however I want to. And if you put that in through Flux or Spat, and you start playing with your ambisonics a little bit, you really are starting to create textures and different different things within the Atmos realm. And it's very quite. It's it's it feels really good. So I just wanted to throw that out there so that you don't just. Uh, disregard ambisonics uh yes it, it's a lot of tracks yes it's a it's a lot of work but the payoff is really really huge on the cap more on the capture side than the i mean the playback too obviously i think there's headphone solutions obviously right. that we can do so i think there's a way i don't think the point of entry is crazy expensive hopefully it's not no. going to price you out so that microphone zeal I, I looked at that the mm. 19 capsule one okay yeah and it it's um it's very reasonable i think it's under a thousand bucks and it does it does pretty good okay yeah Great question, though. Yeah, thank you. Um, next was someone, yeah, right here. <clears throat> so the uh, the opening narration sounded fantastic. Thank you. Um, and it might just be because I'm second row, but it was so nice and big. Are you um, are you still just mixing your narration into a regular bed on center, or are you lifting it a little, or are you playing with objects and using your narration in that, and maybe you know increasing yeah. the size or what, what are yeah. your thoughts? Uh, well, this one, I wanted to make the voice an object, and I was not allowed to because it was going into IMAX. So um, the, basically the stage said, please, for the love of God, don't make it an object. And I said, okay, I won't. And so I made it big through an LCR spread. And um, thank you. I, that's what they wanted, the big, 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 big voice. Uh, so, but I do occasionally play with voices, especially intimate conversations or different dialogues. I just, I'll make the, the, make them objects and I'll bring, make it a little bit bigger and just bring it just a little bit forward. So you feel that intimacy. Um, most, um, and I did A-B tests to see if you could actually hear that down the chain. It's very, very subtle, but you can still hear it. So it's 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 really kind of cool. Um, one one thing though that I've started doing in action scenes or movement scenes with uh, with dialogue is I make them objects and I move them. I tend to move them around a lot. Like in the river and the wall, there was a scene with the bikes and they're carrying the bikes and you know you have different perspectives from far and near and they're talking and uh, and they're walking and through the rut the the rain and the mud and everything with this bike and so i made all that dialogue ob objects and so i made the canoe an object so when you see it tonight um 
the canoe going down the river. It's actually an object going through the ambience beds that I'm, I created. So I, I do play with that a little bit more. It's kind of taboo, I think, uh, for some people. But I, I one one thing that per, somebody came up with this morning is that you know sometimes it's oh you just really mix it in seven one and then you got some objects and I'm like no I mean I mean that that could be how they treat it and but my insides wanted to scream like no that's that's not the point of what you're doing at least for me yes you have to have a solid seven one mix you have to have that you have to make sure that what you're doing will fold down but I mean you have these, you know, don't, don't, don't kid yourself that you're just doing seven one with little icing on top. That's not it at all. You have to think differently. You have to approach it differently. It's a different mindset. It's not channel based audio anymore. So don't treat it like that. Shots fired. Oh man. I just, <laughs> I'm very passionate about that. <laughs> That's I why really I am. Yeah. I think we have time for one more question. If there is one. Hi Cheryl. Hi. It's Chris. Oh, hey, Chris. Hey, I haven't uh, seen you all day. <laughs> what did you, well, could you, what could you tell us about your room, uh, physical dimensions of your, your new suite? And uh, what did you use to just settle on for tuning your room? And what, what uh, you know? Did, did oh, you, my what, goodness. All questions that I wish Jeremy was here to answer. What's, um, okay. How about the channel count? Like, what's your, are you 916? Oh, yeah. No, no, no. 714. 714. Okay. And um, it's the dimensions of the room, the height ceiling um speaker down is almost nine and a half feet and then it's hmm, a good 25 30 feet wide and about 55 60 feet long wow yeah it's a nice big room and i feel it like the room was 20 percent smaller before including the height and i always fought with really understanding a little bit where the spatial uh, applications went and when I went into the new the new room I, I was just like wow this is really awesome I can hear things that I've never heard before and I'd put up mixes and I was like wow and I'm really and in the back of my head I'm like I'm wow I'm really glad that I made the right decision there because it was it was you know different it was really eye-opening for me um, I would definitely make sure that you fit into the Dolby um, specs and they have that wonderful sheet that um, you plug in your numbers and then you figure out where to put your speakers. And I remember when we were building the new room, Jeremy uh, uh, one time called me and said, I messed up. Well, he didn't use the word them word. He used a different word. And he says, I messed up. And I'm like, what? You, what what's going on? He goes, there's a metal pipe in the ceiling right where our speaker has to go. And I'm like, well, what do we do? And he goes, I can move it three inches and we'll still be in spec. I probably shouldn't say that out loud to the Dolby folks, but anyway, so, um, and it worked out fine. It worked out fine, but those are the struggles. We're in the real world where you, you're not, you know, you have to deal with metal pipes and you have to deal with elevator shafts and you have to deal with, you know, the recovery therapy people next door and you have to, you know, it's also, let me tell you, I've seen some interesting people. Super specific. So I feel like you oh man. One day was, I walked out the suite and I was, I was walking out the new studio and it was kind of late. I worked some I worked wind flutes. What was it? What was it? it was, and I opened the door and there's this woman just standing there and I went, <gasps> and I was like, oh no, okay, this has got to change. I got to get a camera or something. So All I right. can see. But, Note you know, to self: sorry. Don't put your sorry, studio I, next to it. I digress, to it. but yeah. You guys, give Cheryl a big round of applause. Super Thank excited. Thank you.